It's almost 20 years ago a, a movie came out that has become just about a cult classic among my generation. You might have seen the movie. It was called The Shawshank Redemption. It stars Timothy Robbins and Morgan Freeman, and it was based on a novel by Stephen King in which a well-to-do banker is wrongly convicted for a crime, murder, and sent to prison in Maine in 1947 to serve a life sentence. And throughout the movie, for the next 20 years, he endures harsh treatment and many lonely nights and the weight of being unfairly accused and, and sentenced, and yet... All throughout the movie, he hangs on to hope. In fact, that's much of the theme of the movie is the fact that hope is worth hanging on to, hope that someday he might eventually get free once again. And realizing toward the end of the movie that the only way for this to happen will be for him to break out, he manages to tunnel his way through the concrete and sandstone walls of his jail cell, find the main sewer pipe of the prison, and crawl through the sewer pipe to the outside. And once he has gone through this harrowing escape, I think the, the real high point of the movie occurs when it shows his response to finally being free. And so I want you to look up here on the screen. I'm going to show you a clip from this movie. It's a, we had to edit the clip because I'm not suggesting you see it. I'm suggesting you just see this clip uh, from this movie. And, and it shows his response once he is free. So we're going to back it up a little bit and show it in context. But, but just note his response to freedom. Look up here on the screen. to freedom through 500 yards of foulness I can't even imagine. Or maybe I just don't want to. Five hundred yards. That's the length of five football fields. Just shy of half a mile. Two things happens at the high point of that movie. The first thing he does is what you and I would do, and that's that he rips off the prison clothes that he's been wearing for 20 years, the clothes that symbolize his incarceration. And then once those shirts are ripped off, what does he do? He just revels in the freedom that he has now just attained. And it really is the high point of the movie. Now, why do I show that clip to you? Here's the deal, folks. Galatians 5, verse 1, the beginning of the passage that we're going to look at this morning, says this. Look up here on the screen. 
It says it is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, Christ, as we all know, Jesus Christ, went through a tremendous amount of muck in order to buy our freedom. He endured our sin upon him when he died upon a wooden cross. And many of us, in coming to follow Christ, have also had a rather difficult journey. We've had to learn to abandon our lives to him. As he said, to put our hand to the plow and not look back, we've gone through our own journey as well. And so what the author is saying here is don't go back. Uh, to refer to our movie, don't crawl back into the pipe that you just came out of, but revel in your freedom, recognize it, enjoy it, definitely thank God for it, but by all means, do not lose it. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And yet once we understand this, once we see these opening words of chapter 5, if you're at all human, you got to be thinking like I do, and that is, well, a lot easier said than done. Because the reality is, is that freedom has some inherent risks with it that, that, that just make it very difficult. I mean, there's a risk that we're going to go back. There's a risk that we're going to abuse our freedom and not make the most of it. I mean, earlier in the movie that I just showed you, there's a scene where there's an inmate named Brooks who had been in prison for almost 50 years, almost all of his life. And when he's finally released from prison and free, he doesn't know what to do with it. It's so daunting to him, it's so terrifying to him, that he actually ends up taking his life because he figures it's better to gamble with death than to gamble with freedom. And the reality is, is that you and I all know Christians who don't make the most of the freedom that they have in Christ. I mean, tell me this isn't true. There are some Christians that just stay in neutral after they come to Christ and have been set free, and they do nothing with their spirituality. They just stay in neutral, and they don't grow, and they don't mature. Or, or how about this? I know some Christians that don't stay in neutral. They actually use their freedom as an excuse now to do irresponsible, even sinful things. Hey, I'm free, I'm forgiven, so why not? Or, or even worse, I know some Christians who actually have gone back into the pipeline that they emerged from, all that muck and mire, and they decided that maybe the muck and mire is going to feel better than the freedom that they have. It makes no sense, but lots of unhealthy responses, folks, to freedom. Why? Because, you see, freedom is a big deal to God. I mean, he's not joking around when he says to you and I that we are free in Jesus Christ. It's just that with freedom comes some responsibility, and with freedom comes some privileges. So here's our main point this morning. If I had to say it in a sentence, the first 15 verses of Galatians chapter 5, I'd say it this way, that in Christ we are set completely free and with freedom come some awesome privileges. I, I think that's what it, the text is going to say to us here, that in Jesus Christ, here's the good news, you are set completely free. And we'll see what that means in a minute here. God has freed you up to walk with him, to know him, to live a life pleasing to him, which you were unable to do 
before you came to Christ. But with that freedom that you have, now come some privileges that are actually awesome privileges. And yet, get this. Now, this is so cool. The privileges that you and I have actually become the keys to living out and protecting and maintaining our freedom. Let me repeat that. This is a circular reasoning thing you need to see here. God frees us up in Christ and then gives us some privileges that we need to respond to with our freedom. And these same privileges that are a result of our freedom are actually that which keep our freedom going and growing. So it would be like a, a great marriage in which in your marriage you have the privilege of trust and intimacy because of your marital commitment, and yet it's that same trust and intimacy that makes your marriage strong, right? So you're freed up to trust and be intimate with your spouse, but when you practice that, it actually does nothing but strengthen the freedom of trust and intimacy that you have. God says it's the same way in Christ, that we have certain privileges that he has granted us based on our freedom, and it's through the living out of these privileges that we best maintain and protect our freedom. So I want to show you what I mean. In our time remaining this morning, I want to share with you two key privileges. There's more, but these are just two that Galatians 5 will go on to share with us. And as we look at these, I want you to take special note, and Cactus and Venue, I want you to take special note as well, as to how these privileges that are a result of our freedom are actually that which also keep our freedom strong and protected. So here's the first one, and you'll see what I mean. And that is that we have the privilege of ongoing forgiveness from God based on faith. It really is an outpouring of the freedom you have in Christ. You have the privilege of ongoing forgiveness from God based on your faith in Christ. So look with me at what Paul the Apostle, the author of Galatians, goes on to say in the next five verses of Galatians 5. Look at verses 2 through 6. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, we need to understand a little bit about the theology going on here if we're going to kind of see what the main point of this privilege is in these passages. You will notice that when you look closely at these passages, this passage, it is basically contrasting faith in Christ with the Old Testament practice of circumcision. It's contrasting circumcision and faith. And what you need to know is that this is very consistent with the message of Galatians as a whole. Because you see, when it says circumcision there, as most of us know, circumcision was the practice that the Jews would do on the eighth day of males, the eighth day of their birth after they were born. And it was a practice that became a sign and seal of the Mosaic Covenant. That's all I'm going to say right now about circumcision. So if you still don't get it, you can Google it later because I don't even like talking about the topic. 
But just suffice it to say that circumcision is something that was done back then, and it's still done today by many for health reasons, but it was done back then not for health reasons, but as a sign and seal that you were placing yourself under the law. That's really important. Listen to how one Old Testament commentator says it. He says, circumcision is the seal of the law. He who willingly and deliberately undergoes circumcision enters upon a contract to fulfill the law. And so that's really important. Basically what the author of Galatians is doing here is then saying that if you try to commit yourself to being as moral as you can based on God's Old Testament law as a way of justifying yourself before God, as a way of dealing with your sin and responding to your sin by saying, God, I'm going to be as moral as I can, he's saying that's not going to work. In fact, that's nullifying the freedom that you are being given through Christ and faith in him. And the logic is simple. We've looked at it for the last six months here at our church. You can't be moral enough to please a holy God. You and I are too fallen. We need forgiveness. We need grace. And the only way that God has seen fit to give us the grace and the forgiveness that we need is through the provision of Jesus Christ who is the one that bore our sins upon himself, and it's through our faith and trust in him and his provision that we find forgiveness. That's what's being contrasted here. It's the way of of just increased morality or the way of faith. And he's saying, obviously, accept the way of faith. And I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul feels so strongly about this that he even goes on to say that if we insist on placing ourselves under the law, trying to earn God's favor through moral effort, then you're essentially going to nullify the freedom that you might have had. You're being severed from Christ. You've you've fallen from grace, he says. To use our analogy from the movie, it would be just like coming out of that pipe after going through all that muck and mire and what Jesus went through from you, only to crawl right back into it. He he says you don't want to do that. Because you see, folks, grace and freedom, forgiveness from God, comes through faith in Christ and nowhere else. And this is what it means in verse 5 when it says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. You see, as we trust Christ and, and, and as we experience his forgiveness moment by moment each day, it makes us more righteous and eventually even the full righteousness that we'll have in heaven with God forever. And once you understand this, once you understand what's being laid out here, you see that the privilege of ongoing forgiveness by God in Christ based upon your trust in him is the best way for you and I to respond to our freedom and even protect it and maintain it. Or or to put it more boldly, I'm just going to state it like I see it. Based on this passage, I I would conclude it would be a yoke of slavery, a loss of freedom, verse 1, for you and me to not embrace our forgiveness by God each moment of each day. That every time we mess up, And I'm not just talking about little ways, giving somebody a dirty look in the grocery store, but I'm talking about big ways. When when you lose it with your kids, maybe when you're you're on the rocks with your spouse and you make a, a blundering financial decision, whatever it might be for you, whatever your Achilles heel is, that besetting sin that you just can't seem to get over, that 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 when you do that again, that it's at that moment. That what your Christian faith tells you to do, what the Bible tells you to do, is look your sin square in the face and say, God covers that one. 
That's under his grace. The privilege I have of being free in Christ is that I get to experience his forgiveness. And his forgiveness doesn't mean anything unless it means something on the really big things. And again, I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, Jimmy, but shouldn't you repent? Well, yeah, but haven't you tried that? I mean, the reality is, is if every time we sinned, all we had to do was say, well, I'm never going to do that again. Well, how hard would that be? God knows that we have feet of clay. He knows that we struggle with certain things. Am I speaking real enough here? And the reality is, is that until you learn to experience his forgiveness and the fact that he has forgiven you and freed you and loved you nonetheless, until that's cemented in your soul, I promise you, you will not change. Because you see, I see Christians try to do this all the time. I mean, the problem with what we're learning here today with this teaching here from Galatians is that most Christians really don't have the spiritual guts to apply this. We don't. We think it's too easy. I mean, when we sin, we do a bunch of things, but we rarely look sin in the face and say, God's got that one. God's got that. He's forgiven me for that. No, what we usually do is that we try to minimize it. I see Christians do this all the time. Well, I made a mistake. Don't you love that word mistake? I wonder what that word means. I think God calls it sin. But we call it a mistake and we kind of say, oops, and we, 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 we kind of sweep it under the carpet. That's what we do with sin. Or, or, or conversely, I see Christians do this. Many times we don't call it a mistake. We call it a sin. And then we spiral down in shame and guilt. Do you ever find yourself doing that? There's no way God could forgive me. I mean, I, it's like I did it again. I did it again. And there's no way he can forgive me. And before you know it, we're, we're spiraling down in guilt and shame. Or how about this? I see this one all the time too. We say, I promise God never to do it again. You ever find yourself doing that? I promise. I know I did it again. I know it's been years. I know this is really hard. But that's it. It won't happen again. I, I always wonder, what does God think when we're doing that, you know? Like he's God. He knows that you're probably going to do it again, especially with the fact that you're not going about it the right way. Because here's the deal. When you say I'm doing it again, you know what you're saying is I'm going to muster up all my human strength to make sure this never happens again. And I'll tell you, God's not impressed with that. God is saying you don't get it. You're fallen. You're frail. You're weaker than you think. And I've given you this, this balm of forgiveness, this grace that my son paid a high price for. And one of your privileges that you've been set free to do is to receive that forgiveness. And the catch-22 is that it's only when we do that that we stand any chance of actually overcoming. I tried to think of a couple of illustrations on this this week, and I, and I, and I got some good ones. And, uh, and I think you're going to like this. No, really, you're going to like these. aren't mine. I found these. I, I, I admit I subscribed to a sermon database because I got no creativity. And, and, and so they, they, these came from this. But they're good. They're really good. The first one is this. Andre Cassagne died this year in January. You're saying, who's Andre Cassagne? He, he died in Paris, France at the age of 86. And Andre Cassagne, about 50 years ago, was working in a particular industry that worked with aluminum powder. And, and when he was working with the aluminum powder, he realized that he could draw things in the aluminum powder and then, and, then, and then erase them and draw it over again. And so he invented an invention back then that he called the Magic Cube that the Ohio Art Company picked up and relabeled an Etch-A-Sketch. 
So the inventor, the founder of the Etch-A-Sketch died this year. And this was labeled one of the top 100 toys of the 20th century. There's not one of us here today that doesn't know what an Etch-A-Sketch is. Uh, because an Etch-A-Sketch is a brilliant invention. As you know, you turn these little knobs, and as you turn them, you can draw a picture or make lines on this, and you can make words and pictures. You ever seen the movie Elf? He does the Mona Lisa. And, and, and so you can draw on an Etch-A-Sketch here. And yet the beauty of an Etch-A-Sketch is that if you can't draw like me, and I, this is about what I did in third grade and it's what I can do now, you come up with just a bunch of lines that don't mean anything. And so what do you do when that happens? You shake it. And once you shake it just a few times, lo and behold, it's gone. Now, now, now this is a perfect illustration of the gospel. You and I every day are etching our way through life. We are. We're turning knobs. We're making things happen. And we're etching things into our soul and into the world around us. And every day it's like we're turning knobs and we're etching things. And let's be honest. Sometimes when we etch, we get to the end of the day and say, I etched really good. And, and we say, I like what I etched today, and we feel good about it. But if you're honest, there's also days that you get to the end of the day and you say, that was a bad etch. <laughs> and Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, I don't know what you guys are laughing about. Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations says that his mercies are new every morning. Isn't that awesome? His mercies are new every morning. And so on the days that you etch something that doesn't honor God... What God does is he shakes the gospel at you, and he says it's gone. And again, I don't know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, that's too easy. Well, it's what the Bible says. Think of the word pictures that the Bible uses to talk about God's response to our sin in Christ. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has I thrown my sin, your sin, from you. He says, I've thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness. It'll be remembered no more. Your sin used to be as red as scarlet. Now it's as white as, yeah, snow. You see, God's not joking about this stuff. He takes very seriously your sin. And Christ went to great lengths to give you the gospel. And the gospel is like a cosmic etch-a-sketch that just takes your sin away because of what God did for you. Now hang on to that, and let me share one more illustration. We're going to put them together, because this will be meaningful for you. Last night as I was heading out to the service, I asked Kim to, to give me a couple of gift cards, because she's a holder of gift cards in our family. And I, I'm glad I asked her, because I did not realize how many gift cards she had. She pulled out of her purse... She had a stack. If they were credit cards, I'd had an anxiety attack. But she had a, a, a stack of gift cards. And so she just gave me a couple. She gave me Crate and Barrel and then Starbucks. And then she said, don't use them. And I said, you don't have to worry about Crate and Barrel, but this one's gone. And so I, I, I got my Starbucks this morning from this. Now, now, here's the deal about gift cards. Gift cards right now in America, this is going to blow you away. Since 2005, when we started keeping records, there have been over $100 billion worth of gift cards bought in the United States. Let that sink in a minute. $100 billion. I mean, it's an amazing industry, and that's why so many people know what these are. What you might not know is that from 2005 to 2011, uh, about $41 billion worth of gift cards either expired or went unused. So whoever invented gift cards was a brilliant businessman or businesswoman, right? 
because they know that you're paying full dollar for these. You're giving them to someone, and 40% of the time they're going into a drawer or my wife's purse, and they're not being used. And they used to expire. Now Congress has passed legislation that they can't expire anymore, trying to put some, some things around this. But $41 billion worth of unused gift cards. Here's my point. I would submit to you that the gospel, as we already established, is like an etch-a-sketch in which your sin is shaken away by Jesus Christ, but you and I treat the gospel like a gift card. Maybe we'll use it, maybe we won't. I'm forgiven by God, I know that, Jamie, but you know what? As I'm going out throughout my week, I'm not going to see it as an etch-a-sketch, I'm going to see it as a gift card. And maybe I'll pull out the gift card and apply it here and there, but maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just call it a mistake and sweep it under the carpet. Maybe I'll spiral down into shame. And maybe I'll go back into that pipe that I came from. All unhealthy responses to the freedom that God has given you. Don't see the gospel as a gift card that you might use, you might not. See it as it is, as God's complete and full provision for your sin and for your life. The sufficiency of your spiritual life. I love how Eugene Peterson tells it in his book, Tell It Slant. He has such a way with words. Look up here on the screen. This is great. He says, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. It certainly was Jesus' way. Every interaction Jesus had with people was simply about trying to get them to see the awesome grace and forgiveness of the Father through the gospel of Christ. The woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus up a tree, Peter when he denied him, Matthew at the tax collector's booth. I mean, Jesus' whole ministry was setting up the cross. And his whole work in your life, everything, is about helping you to see this privilege that you have of forgiveness based on faith in Christ. And lo and behold, when you apply it, as you apply it this week to your life, as you trust in Christ to forgive you, you're going to find it does nothing but cement and galvanize the freedom that you are exercising. Now, we're not done yet. There's another privilege that Galatians 5 puts before us as a result of our freedom in Christ. And like our forgiveness from God, this is a privilege that also acts as a spiritual calcifying agent of our freedom. And it's hinted to in verse 6 and then spelled out in detail in verses 13 to 15. So let me read it for you. Look at your own Bible or look up here on the screen and then I'll state it in principle form. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall say it with me, love. Let's try it again. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, we're going to skip verses 7 through 12 here, not because we don't want to teach it, but because if you look closely at verses 7 through 12 later, it's basically a repeat. It's a personal plea from Paul to apply verses 2 through 5. So it's a recap of verses 2 through 5. But you'll notice in verse 6 that Paul hints to the link that he's going to get to here when he links the first privilege of forgiveness based on faith with the second privilege when he says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
And so here's the second amazing privilege that you and I have in our freedom in Christ that you don't want to miss, and that is that we have the privilege of renewed love for others. We have the privilege of renewed love for others, and you don't want to miss the profundity of this point. Paul says in verse 13 that we are called to freedom, which is obviously a recap of verse 1 where he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So he says you're called to freedom. And then in telling us not to use our freedom to indulge the flesh, which is really a powerful word there because he's basically saying that word flesh means bodily passions. It means just doing what you want to do, doing that which makes you feel good. So he's saying don't use your freedom for that because that's probably going to lead to some unhealthy, sinful behavior. He says, no, use your freedom to love others. And then quoting Leviticus 19 from the Old Testament that Jesus would also repeat in Matthew 22, he says the entire law can be summed up this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we all know who our neighbor is because we've read the parable of the Good Samaritan in which Jesus says that your neighbor is anybody and everybody that God brings in your path. Christian and non-Christian, anybody that God puts in your path, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan, is your neighbor. And we're to love them. But then he applies this to the church because he says in verse 13 that we're to serve one another in the church as an outward sign of our inward love through love we serve. And then he adds the negative warning that if instead of loving, we bite and devour one another, I, I, I know it's hard to picture Christians doing that to each other in church, but just go with it. If we bite and devour one another, he says you just might be consumed by one another. So dial into this. This is so cool. I know I'm giving you a lot here, but this is really good stuff. Just like faith is the antithesis to circumcision in verses 2 through 5, Love, in verses 13 to 15, becomes the antithesis to its opposite, which would be to not serve, to not care for, to verbally not express kindness, biting and devouring one another, uh, to those around us. Because you see, folks, when you and I relationally love others, both in what we say to them and how we treat them, we're actually living out our freedom in Christ. I mean, I don't want to try and sound arrogant here, but we're doing something that God says the rest of the world really can't do as well. They're still in the pipe. They're still stuck and mired in selfishness and their own misery without God. He's saying those that know God and have been forgiven by God through Christ, we are primed to now pass this grace on to those around us and love. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but I don't feel like loving there's lots of times I don't feel like being kind. Well, who cares what you feel? Honestly, can I say that? I mean, I care what you feel. I'm your pastor. A therapist cares what you feel. You're paying them. But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, God says, I know you don't feel like loving, but you don't base your life on feelings. You base your life on the Holy Spirit who has empowered you to do something that only your freedom in Christ enables you to do, and that is to love and to serve those around you. I'm telling you, folks, I live this. Do you think I feel like loving most of you throughout the week? <laughs> no, I do not. There are times where people come up to me, and I love Christians are so manipulative. Hey, Pastor, can I share something with you in love? I know what's coming. <laughs> You're going to get in my face about something, and I'm just as human as you guys. Do you think I like to take that? I like to take it on the chin? No. There's times I want to 
tell you what I really think, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. At that moment, I dig deep and I say, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I can respond graciously and kindly. It's a true story. I walked into a pastor's office the other day. It was a humbling moment. I got off the phone with somebody who was chewing my ear about something. And I walked into my friend pastor's office and I said, boy, I just got off a difficult phone call. And I said to him, I said, I, I think I was probably too kind. <laughs> and I'll never forget his response as long as I live. He said to me, I don't think it's possible to be too kind, Jamie. He said, I don't think that you could be that way. I thought, good for him. He's exactly right. It's not possible to be too kind. What does this mean for you and I as the church today? I, I had a wonderful discussion with the elders this last Thursday night. As you guys know, I've been honest with you about this. My, my fear for us as a church going into our building campaign is that we're going to see this, this disruption to our campus as, a, as an excuse not to continue on with our mission. And that is to reach a lost community and, and to show them the love of Christ. That we're going to wait till after the buildings are done to do that. And that would be such a shame. And so the elders are talking about it. We read a couple of articles in preparation for our meeting that were really helpful, some Christian articles, and they were both from very different places. One was from John Piper's website on, uh, on, on, on how evangelism needs to happen in the 21st century, and the other one was a review of a book called Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. It was sent to me by Ed, one of our elders. And it's interesting because both of these articles said something very similar. The one on why nobody wants to go to church anymore just outlined the fact that it's really hard to grow a church in today's spiritual climate, really hard. But he suggested that if you do four things, that, that you can change that trend. And the number one thing on the list really caught our eye as elders. He called it radical hospitality. He said, if everybody that comes to your church Everybody, no matter who they are, whether it's Matthew the tax collector, the woman caught in adultery, whoever it might be from our culture today comes to your church, if they feel accepted and genuinely welcome. Now, now listen, church, not by just the ushers, because they're trained to do that, but by all of us looking at each other in the pew and, and with genuineness say, I'm so glad you're here. Larry Crabb says that church is the safest place on earth, and this is the safest place that you could be this morning. If, if every newcomer were to feel that from us, this guy suggests there'd be no stop in the church. And then interestingly, Piper's article, written by one of his guys, says the same thing. He says, you know what the key to evangelism in the 21st century will be, don't you? He says, hospitality. Interesting. And then he goes on, as only Piper could do because he's so theologically robust, he says the reason that this is so is because hospitality is no minor biblical theme. The streams of hospitality flow deeply from the well of God. Christians love the stranger because we have been loved by the Father when we ourselves were strangers. Hospitality, he says, rises in its purest form when we heed Ephesians 2 verse 12 that says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Simply put, because God was hospitable to you and me. We now are hospitable to anybody and everybody. And just by applying that is a game changer. It's a life changer for the church. As many of you know, one of the things that we do in-house here a lot is show you video stories that we've captured of what's going on in the lives of God's people. It's, it's kind of our way of, of being able to take a really big church and make it small and personal. So we captured another story this week that we've called Angelo's story. 
And it's a profound, moving story of what the Lord has done in one family's life through a lot of brokenness, but also through the hospitality of his church. And his church is this church. So get ready to be moved. Look up here on the screen at Angelo's story. In the early 90s, I met my wife, Carol, and we ended up getting married in 1996. We, we were running a business back in Connecticut. Had uh, our first son in, in uh, May of 2000. Uh, two more after that, so we had Joey, Mark, and Vince. And in uh, 2009, January 2009, uh, Carol got diagnosed with uh, uh, very invasive breast cancer, and they, they wanted to uh, treat it very aggressively. Within uh, weeks, she gets pregnant with our fourth child unexpectedly. Uh, and most people uh, told us that we should have an abortion because the baby would not survive through the cancer treatments. So luckily, uh, we didn't go that route. And my wife is the first woman uh, with cancer that delivered a healthy baby in Connecticut. Her name is Rebecca. Uh, but in December 23rd of uh, 2010, we were given the news that Carol only had um, uh, six months or less to live. So we knew of this place here in Scottsdale that does things more holistically. And so within minutes, I had flights booked to Scottsdale. Uh, we knew nobody except for one, one friend. And I said, well, if we're going to come here, we're pretty active in our church back in Connecticut. Um, I asked my friend, I said, what church should we go to? And he says, you should go to Scottsdale Bible. So that Sunday, we went to Scottsdale Bible, and I thought we were at a big church back in Connecticut. And I was like blown away. Church ended. I'm one of the ones that actually filled out the communication card. I walked in back. I met this really nice lady. And I told her our story, why we're here. And, and that was it. The next day, uh, Jessica Neal went and visited my wife. And I said, I mean, I'm not even in this church for 24 hours, and here's somebody from the church that's visiting my wife at, at the hospital. So we became really connected with a lot of people. The kids love coming to this church. They're excited. Got involved with Awana. Even though how big it is, we, we just made so many connections, so, you know, so many great people that helped us here. Um, and unfortunately, a year later to the day, uh, December 23rd, 2011, uh, Carol passed away. I um, read uh, after she passed away, I went through her journals, and her faith never wavered. She still trusted in God after going through that. And that night as she passed away, my son, he says his prayers, and then he says, and thank you, God, for making mommy feel better. So, so he got it. He probably still sits there going, I wish mommy was here. But he got it that, that she's in a better place. And, you know, they're, they're healthy children knowing what they've gone through in their life. But you could tell they're missing, they're missing uh, their mom. I, I believe uh, kids need their mother. You know, they need their father, but they need their mother. So, you know, I would have loved for, you know, to, for the story to end, you know, and now here's Carol. But I think, you know, you have to realize that it, all the stories are not always going to end that way. That, if anything, I just feel uh, thankful that I'm able to be there for my kids. And uh, but it isn't without God's grace.
My name is Angelo Manuelli, and this is my story. You know, God is uh, so incredibly, incredibly good, even in our, our darkest times. And, and when I have been familiar with Angelo's story for a while, and I can remember when Angelo and Carol first came here, they sat in the second pew. And I, I can remember when they first came here, I, I had no doubt, I, I had no doubt that because our church is caring and loving that they were going to be cared for. And, and yet we're also thankful that Jessica went and, and saw them and served them and based upon that testimony today, here's what I'd like you guys to think about. Imagine what would happen if every visitor to our church, if even every friend you have that you introduce to other believers was to experience that kind of hospitality. Such a simple thing, really, visiting somebody in the hospital. But imagine what would happen if that was to happen all the time here. I mean, I, I don't think we'd have a problem at all through our building campaign with reaching others with the gospel of Jesus. Because they wouldn't be focused on a campus disruption. They'd be focused on the love, just like Angelo was, that he received. And, you know, Angelo, we didn't tell you the rest of the story there. After Carol passed away and went to be with the Lord, Angelo decided to reboot their entire life. And because in part of his experience here at our church and other things, he decided to move his whole family out here to Scottsdale, and that's why they're now a part of our church here. I mean, one life changed by God in so many ways, in part, using his church. You see, that's what God does. And so here's the deal for you and me this morning. And for Cactus and Venue, I need you to, to bear with me on this too. About two weeks ago, I had you all in, in a very spiritual, worshipful moment put the names of those that you want to see reached in your sphere of influence, as well as the names of those who you want to see helped in your spiritual sphere, spheres of influence, those who want to see God reach to, and then those who might have already been reached but need help, I ask you to write their names on a piece of paper, roll it up, and put it on our prayer wall. And so here in our worship center, and then in Cactus and Venue, we have prayer walls in our worship center here that are filled with names. You can see them on your right and your left. And I want you to notice a couple of things about those names that we are going to be praying for for the next two years. One, there's still some space on there for more names. Give me a head nod that you all see that. So you'll also see that there are cards at the end of each prayer wall for you at any time to go up and add more names. Maybe you have more in your, your repertoire. Maybe there you didn't go the, up two weeks ago. Please feel free to go up, put names on there confidentially, roll it up, and put it on the prayer wall. We're praying regularly for those names. And then the second thing I want you to do is let's take this even further this week, and let's not just pray for them, but based on Galatians 5, let's serve these people. So, so that will be very meaningful to you. Whoever you put on your list there, Kim and I were comparing our list, and some of them include neighbors, and some of them are kids, and I mean, just the people we put on our list. Let, let's reach out, even this week, and through love, serve one another, and let's see what God does with that. Because that's the way that he operates. Here's my closing thought to you today, and that is, it's your take-home point on your notes there, and that is don't waste your freedom. It's really what the whole message of Galatians 5, the first half, is about. It says in verse 1, as it starts it all off, For freedom Christ set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. And then in verse 13, as it ends, it says, For you were called 
to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. It's saying the same thing. It's saying it is empirically true that you have been freed up if you are in Christ. You're freed up now to trust God each moment of each day and experience his forgiveness. You're freed up to love other people and to care for them as God wants you to. So don't waste your freedom. Do those two things and watch your freedom grow and give you the satisfaction and joy that God wants you to have. That's my call to you today. But we're going to go to our elder fund offering and our cactus and venue will as well. As many of you know, it's a once-a-month offering. It's a perfect time given this message. It's a once-a-month offering that we take up for those in need in our community. Last fiscal year, we gave away over $300,000 based on your generosity to those in need. And we still have a lot of people in need in our church and in our community. So give generously to this, and then Cody will lead us in a song and then uh, dismiss you all. So would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, we're grateful for what you do in our lives when we respond to the grace that you've shown us. Uh, Lord, I, I, I'm just amazed that you've gone to such great lengths to get our attention, to enter into our lives in profound ways, and then what you ask in return is for us to trust you and to receive what you've given and then to reach out and in head-turning ways love others around us. So God, empower us to do that this week. For those of us who think this might be too difficult, change us. Show us that by the power of your spirit we can do what you say. And Lord, may you be honored and glorified as we exercise our freedom that you have given us. Lord, receive this offering now with the generosity that it comes with and use this to bring a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to those that need it. We pray this in Christ's name and we all say together,